This is Tim Sanders, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome back to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up at the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 708 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 708 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Tim Sanders. Tim is a good friend of mine. He's the author of the amazing book, Love is the Killer App, and he has a new book out now called Deal Storming: the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges. And I invited Tim to come on the show, not because we're taking a, a venture into sales in addition to leadership, innovation, and strategy, but that really, when I dove into the deal storming process, it was a wonderful formula for creative thinking and problem solving for anybody. I think any leader can use the lessons in deal stormings, whether you lead a sales organization or not. More importantly, I think every organization has to negotiate and has to make deals. And this is an amazing book for how to bring everyone in the organization together because deal storming, or as Tim calls it, sales genius is a team sport. You might recognize that from my book, The Myths of Creativity, where I say that creativity is a team sport. Tim actually interviewed me a long time ago when he was doing research for this book, and I loved the way he blends sales, creativity, problem solving, all of these things together. There's amazing lessons for leaders in this interview, whether you lead a sales organization or not. So without further ado, our interview with Tim Sanders. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Tim Sanders. I'm the former chief solutions officer at Yahoo, and I'm an author. I've written five books, including Love is the Killer App and my most recent book, Deal Storming. I also run a consultancy, Deeper Media, Las Vegas, Nevada. I focus on helping sales leaders solve big deals as well as build strong culture. And and when you're not doing that, you take pictures of me eating nachos. Let's just, um, you know, let's talk about our history together. I'm like the thought leader paparazzi. I love my little camera. I run around taking pictures. My wife... uh, Bought me my first digital camera back in two thousand and one, and I've been hooked on that ever since. Yeah, if if you don't follow Tim on Facebook to just see his beautiful photos that chronicle sort of the adventures of kind of like speaker thought leader life, but also interacting with others, it's it's, it's brilliant. Like it's my if you were an Instagram account, you, it would be it would be t- the TSA Instagram account first, and then yours. Right? <laughs> um, the TSA one, by the way, if you've never followed it, is is brilliant. They just put, post photos of stuff they confiscate, oh, and it's the greatest <laughs> Instagram account ever. But you would be number two, at least to me. So I, I think this is really interesting because I think, I mean, I want to ask you more of a career question off the bat to just talk about you and your expertise. You've got broad range of expertise working with sales teams and sales leaders in a variety of different contexts, both you know in your own corporate life and then with the consultancy. 
But I think mo- do, I feel like most people, when you say Tim Sanders, they think love is the killer app and they think that idea. And so um, I guess talk a little bit about the transition from sort of that to, to this sales expertise. This is really kind of what you've done more of your career in than is love is the killer app. But I mean, there are some tangents between the two, et cetera. But um, talk a little bit about that, what that's like and how that gets us to right now with deal storming. So I was at South by two years ago and I was standing in line to get a burrito and this kid, you know, my, my son's age is behind me and he's looking at me like he recognizes me. And, and I get that David, um, because I unfortunately resemble Crispin Glover, you know, AKA McFly. And so I knew he was going to say, are you Crispin Glover? And so finally he goes, I know you get this all the time, but dude, you could be Tim Sanders, older brother. (laughs) And I went, Oh my God. So, so here it is. Love is the Killer app was published on Valentine's Day 2002. And more than anything, it was a memoir uh, uh, about uh, uh, the rise I had working at Mark Cuban's company as account executive to chief solutions officer at Yahoo in less than four years. And the premise of the book is that love wins. You know, when you share your knowledge to help people succeed, when you share your network to help people solve problems, and when you love them like brothers and sisters, good things happen to you. And that had been my experience. I wrote a book about that. So it ended up being more of a success book than pretty much anything else. And so a lot of people associate me with that because that was my, you know, appetite for destruction to use a Guns N' Roses analogy. So um, to this day, I still think that the love cat is how people think of me. But since then, um, you know, starting with the the Yahoo work and, and then the next, you know, decade after that, I've zeroed in on working with companies or even startups that are trying to land really important deals or solve really important development challenges. And uh, what, I, what I really specialize in, David, is helping them figure out how to build collaborative webs and how to manage that process to produce the next best play very, very quickly. Well, and I think there's something to that in the sense that, I mean, you, you hinted at it in your sort of description of your career is figuring out that sharing your expertise and sharing your network is important, not just for, for the people that you're helping, but for you, that everybody sort of benefits from that. And that's really one of the recurring themes that I see in, in deal storming is this idea of collaboration. Like we, we think of sales, right? And even sales management as a super sort of loner thing. Yep. Like I, you know, I cut my teeth in pharmaceutical right. sales and that was the ultimate, like you work out of your home, you, you have a boss and your boss uses the word team, but what he actually means are like the seven people that you technically get ranked against for bonuses, et cetera. But at the same time, it's their network, their information, the, all of those things are kind of there to help you. And it's a, it's a really interesting concept that I think on the surface, not a lot of people say. And then it leads to my my favorite sentence, in, if not chapter heading, in the book, which is this idea that sales genius is a team sport. It's my favorite because long-term listeners will know there's a huge tangent between myths of creativity. But um, it's also really true because even when I was in, in sales, even if you look at it as an individual selling to an individual, there's still a huge team that's a part of making that sale happen. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I was so influenced, you know, by your book uh, around this idea that there is no lone genius. And I've always believed that. And it was something that was intuitive to me until I heard a sales leader live this before. He literally said sales genius is a team sport. And here's what we all mean. B2B selling or big deal selling, really complicated. You know what I mean? There's a lot of decision makers. There's a lot of complication to our own products. They do their own research. You've got to be very creative. You've got to practice sales innovation from what you pitch to how you pitch it to win, right? But what I've learned is that creativity, if you will, it's our ability 
to produce work that's unexpected, but at the same time appropriate to the situation. And that is beyond the pale of one individual or, more importantly, one perspective. You know, getting back to what you said, those leaders refer to team. What they really are talking about is a stack, right? SVP down to account coordinator with the AE in the middle. But it's a one way of thinking. And the reason they don't want to get out of that stack is because they don't want to turn over that that commissionability opportunity um, to other people. As one person called it, working with the land of no and the world of slow, a.k.a. legal Hmm. and marketing. So they have to kind of get out of that mindset because I've done over 100 deal storms. And I would tell you in the 70 odd times we won, almost every time the idea came from outside the sales stack and then it was built upon by somebody else outside the sales stack and then finally championed by someone inside the sales stack. And that I think is what you and I can agree on. It requires a bunch of minds to notice the patterns, iterate and create the surprising but delightful solution. Oh, totally, totally. And I love, you know, you, you, the, the name of the book is Deal Storming, and you just talked about how many deal storms you've been in. And I love, I love that idea. You know, in, in Myths of Creativity, I talk about the brainstorming myth, which is the myth that it's just one session in a room instead of a broader method. And I love that kind of applied to deal storming because I think everybody's been in that situation, even, even if hopefully, even if you're not in sales directly, hopefully at some point in time, your, your expertise, your influence has been tapped and brought in. And you maybe even be unaware of that method. But if you are in sales, advertising, marketing, et cetera, we've all had those meetings where we, we prep and we pitch and we get ready for the client and we get ready to sort of make the deal work for the client. And that's what, you know, the right way to do it is what you're sort of calling the deal storming method. Walk, walk us through, if you could, like, let's walk through the overarching method for a little bit. And there's a couple areas in it from, from reading the book that I want to drill down on. But for, for those, I don't want to give away the store, but let's at least give away the stages. And then they got to check the book out to know what's in inside the store. So the deal storming process is when you create a team around a big challenge and you recruit everyone who has a stake in the outcome or some knowledge about the problem space that you're dealing with, okay? So it starts with qualify because there's a cost to collaboration. There's a risk to bringing people together from across the company to work on one of your sales challenges. So you want to know it's worth the time and effort. So you want to determine that it's a significant opportunity as well as a high degree of difficulty opportunity. At that point, you resource against the challenge. So let's just say, David, on a scale of 1 to 10, if it's a 6, it's kind of big, kind of complicated, you might have you know, the fantastic four. It might be you, another person in sales, a person in marketing, and a person over in design, right? If it's an eight or a nine, well, that's different. You may have a consortium. It may be like a Pixar brain trust where there's 10 people, including two people from the outside that might be partners or customer champions. So that's the first stage. The second stage of it is to go out and organize this group. And the important thing is, You need to know as a sales leader or as an entrepreneur, you need to know the why, to use Simon Sinek's phrase, behind the deal storm. And it can't just be the money. You need to find a lever. I always use competition because at Yahoo, we were a market culture, okay? Um, Sometimes I'll get into what I call excellence cultures as a consultant, and we use pride. But you need to develop an emotional level or lever if you want to get someone outside of sales really interested in your deal storm, so they'll stay. Because as you mentioned, deal storming is not one meeting. It looks more like an accordion. 
There's the meetings of the teams and the little meetings to get stuff done after that. So you organize around this big value proposition and you don't invite people to come to a meeting. You ask them to join a cause. And you, again, you're looking for us a group of people that can bring diversity and a lot of engagement to the situation. So always make sure someone who has to deliver once the sale is done is involved in your deal storm. The third stage is the most important stage, and it is the prepare stage. And this is something I learned from Tom Kelly at IDEO years ago. That's where chance favors the prepared mind comes from. He explained to me that the briefs that are distributed days before a meeting make meetings really magic. Because when you put together what I call a deal brief that outlines what you think the problem space is, why you're stuck, the influence map, who we have to convince, and then activities to date, including news about the prospect, and then give that deal storm team member a specific thinking assignment pre-meeting, you will initiate incubation, which, you know, as we all know, is really important to creative thinking. So over that weekend, as they've read the deal brief while they're walking their dog or watching the game, their mind is making connections. And so when they come to your deal store meeting, they already have a clear idea about the problem or the solution, and you can skip the information dump. The fourth stage is the meeting. And it's the series of meetings. I call it the convene, the regroup, or the reconvene. And it's the meetings that we have where, in live situation, we're exploring the problem space for at least 15 minutes, because that's really important. And then we're discussing what I call next best play. The fifth thing we do um, is um, we immediately spring to execution, and we begin to implement the next best play. And hopefully, we build a prototype for whatever it is even if it's a process, and sometimes we whisper that to the prospect, I call that the whisper test, to see if it'll hunt before we make a full-blown presentation. Um, after we execute, then the next step is to analyze. It's really important. I learned this from working for Ed Deming in the quality movement. You know, analyzing what you did is the best way to improve what you'll do the next time. So we have to figure out, are we leveling up? Are we still stuck? Do we need to change team members? Or do we need to kill this opportunity? And then the seventh step is to report. And, and we should always do this in a deal storm. Tell everyone in the room what we heard, who promised what and when it's going to happen, and keep them up to date on the progress of the deal. But the last thing I want to say here is that it's really important for leaders, especially sales leaders, to escalate innovations up the chain as fast as possible. So if you created a deal storm and you got unstuck, and you landed the deal, and it's a different way of selling than you did before, you want to go verify that that's going to work a few more times, and then you want to make it the new best practice. Because at corporations, it could take a year or two around the sales conference campfire for an innovation to become a new best practice. Um, and I believe that the only reason to think outside of the box is to make the box stronger. So we've got to close the loop with reporting. Those are the seven stages. No, I, I love it. And I, I love that you touched in at the end. I was actually literally just today bestowing upon someone my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from Deming, in God we trust, all others bring data, right. right? And so if you're not, if, if, if collecting that data and then making decisions based on the data is not part of the process, you're selling yourself, you're selling the process short. Yeah, and, and Deming used to always say, oh, the value of experience. And hmm. that flies yeah. in the face of the Thomas Edison, oh, the value of knowledge. 
Oh, totally. Totally, totally. I wonder if we can, I mean, you sort of hinted at it and talked a little bit about it, but you know, you told us prepare is the most important step. And I totally agree because of that sort of genius of incubation, which long-term listeners of the show, readers of the Mist of Creativity are familiar with that value of incubation. But I think this is something that even if you're if you're listening and you're going, oh, well, I, I don't work on the sales side, of course, deal storming method, you're going to be involved at some point, probably. But even just anybody who's working into a meeting where there is a decision that needs to be made, a problem that needs to be solved, anything, can learn the lesson of this prepare and the idea that the brief sort of goes out ahead of time. And this is not the norm in most okay. companies. So I wonder for, for, for leaders or for managers out there, what are your recommendations on how you do this prepare stage, get the information out there so that when people come to the meeting, they benefited from incubation and you don't need to do that knowledge dump? So it's really important to understand is when you invite people outside of your department, they don't know what they don't know. They don't have the context you have. So you're giving them context with the deal brief. It's also an important exercise for you to think through your meeting. It makes you think through what is our problem? What does that space look like? Who do we have to work with to solve the problem? And what have we tried so far? Um, and I think that when you write a deal brief, remember, it's not an agenda. The agenda is not a deal brief at all. You may have an agenda you know, for the, the A types in the room, and, and I don't suggest passing out a printed one. I put it up in the sharing space. But the deal brief is really a way for you to package a loose collection of facts, observations, and thoughts so that people can notice patterns, fill in the blanks, or find what's missing. And I think the most important part of the deal brief is to be very transparent about what we've done to date and to link to how people can review your work. Because if you don't trust people enough to look at everything you did and tell them the truth, then why in the world are you inviting them to come solve your problem? So as I've begun to work with companies on deal briefs, that's the thing we really had to do, is get everybody, like the problem owner, get them to tell the truth. We made a mistake. We did poor research. We presented the wrong product. We, we, we talked to the wrong people. I need to see that. We, we can't say that we're stuck in this opportunity because it's them. Because in my experience, these issues are 90% our problems, our mistakes. And the more we put that on the table, the more trust you have in the room. And the easier it is for somebody outside your department to say, well, what about this? Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Um, and again, I think... This is something that is not the standard in organizations, but should be. It should be. be. It, it's um, been hard enough just to get organizations to have an agenda. Yeah, well, no, that's true. And that's, and that's one of those rules that like we always talk about, like, oh, you know, a meeting should have an agenda. But we don't really know what that means, how to shape one properly, and then also like what people need to know before they kind of even even arrive. We don't ever think about that. And this is this is one of the fallacies that that I point out to in, in the brainstorming myth, which is again, if, this, if the point of this meeting is to sort of generate and work on the deal, it's the same with brainstorming. Assuming that you can just walk into the room and whatever knowledge you brought into the room is the right set of knowledge without taking the time to do the research to prepare, et cetera, is setting yourself up for failure. Absolutely. Because you again Brainstorming, long list of ideas. Deal storming, next best play. Really, really different idea. But, I, but, but here's a few mechanics about the deal brief I think that's really important, okay? Um, always have a solution meeting on a Monday or a Tuesday if you can. That's an aha for me. I've made that change a few years ago. It's remarkable. Why? Because you send the deal brief out on Thursday. And then you, as the problem owner, start hassling all your team members starting Friday. Did you read it? Did you read it? And I'm notorious for texting people over Sunday. Did you read it? I'm, a, I'm weird about that. Because guess what? If they do, they're contributors on Monday or Tuesday. It's something amazing, David, about you know incubation during 
um, what I call uh, mindless, mindful activities, right? So, so during the week, Monday through Friday, we're so mindful, but we're never mindless, not really much. But on the weekends, it's different. We kind of want to let go a little bit and we do other things. So if we can convince people to read the deal brief before the weekend and then have the meeting right after the weekend, it's just so much more productive at getting people to reveal things they've thought of, things they've noticed. And that's the key, I think, to innovation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. When I get the chance to work with groups, uh, one of my favorite things to do, if we can do this schedule-wise, I mean, obviously it adds another cost because it adds another night, but is to open midday and actually open with kind of a vent session and just let all the kind of negativity, but then also let all the constraints of of the, the situation sort of reveal themselves, then go out to dinner. Then go sleep on it. And then the next morning, we'll come back with it just to provide that, that same sort of deal. I had an interesting question that came up when I was reading it. And you reminded me when you said, you know, that I'm hassling them throughout that. Did you read it? Did you read it? Did you read it? If they don't read it, do you disinvite them from the meeting? No, but I, I remember, you know, I certainly remember. So, you know, I, I don't facilitate meetings anymore. I sit in the back of the room and audit the account executive who facilitates the meeting. But when I coach her later, I point out who I who didn't didn't read the deal brief, and I can tell by, by the way they contribute. And I think it's important for you to double back with them and ask them to read the deal brief even post meeting. And here's why: at the end of every deal storm meeting, the leader should 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 admonish the group to continue to think about it over the coming days and week, and, and get back with them with more ideas. Because a lot of the best stuff doesn't happen in the meeting; it happens after the meeting, right? So so don't give up. Some people are too busy to read the deal brief. Um, uh, I, I've known a couple of people that I consulted with that were super creative where they would make um, they would make a phone call and leave like the highest points of the deal brief in a voicemail to that person um, just so it would be easier for them to consume it. Um, they would tweet bullet points of the deal brief, which I don't recommend for certain cultures where you're private. So I've seen people get creative. I've seen one culture um, that gave away an Amazon gift certificate uh, $50. Um, after they did a lightning round of reviewing the deal brief in the first five minutes of the deal storm. And it didn't, you know, it didn't solve that one if they hadn't read it. But moving forward, it made that culture, it's more gamified, you know, read the deal brief and win. Hmm. It's that, no, that It really is that important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, and I love it. And I love that it's part of a process. Because again, I think the culture is the opposite. The culture is like, we're just asking for your body during this meeting. No, we're asking you to step into an entire process of figuring out this deal. Um, and so for that reason and more, I think even if you don't think of yourself in a sales organization, to be honest, if you're in any organization, I think you need to check out deal storming because the sales side of your organization should be bringing you in. And if you're the one that has to put it in the hands of those executives on that side, do it. Get a copy of the book and, and do that. And I got to tell you, when I speak now at sales conferences, so many times I'm not being brought in by sales leadership. Like I'm doing one next week and, and I was brought in by marketing. I'm doing yeah. it in two weeks. I was brought in by operations because you have to ask for collaboration. Okay. And you don't expect and wait for it. You ask for it. But here's the other thing, David, to be successful in your life, you've got to make deals. You got to make budget deals. You've got to make business development deals. You got to make real estate deals. I mean, I believe everyone from a church leader to a product manager can learn from this book because when you can run a deal maker meeting, you can change the world, but it's hard. I totally agree. So the book again, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. Tim, I think you know what's, what's coming next. Our five questions for Tim Sanders. Are you ready? I am ready. What is the best advice you've ever received? Don't go down alone.
No one ever wins an award for failing by himself. Hmm. Love it. Yeah. And- Sam Woodbury gave me that in 1997. Changed my life. From then on, I, I learned uh, to be a team builder. Love it. Love it. What's an average day look like for you? Uh, an average day. Uh, I, I, I get up. I read for almost an hour, usually out of a book. I walk my dog and dictate observations from the book that may have something to do with what I'll write about in the coming day. I come back. I try to do all my phone calls first thing. I go to the gym where I have a trainer, and then I have a two-hour white space block after lunch because you can't be creative if your calendar's full. And then I write in the late afternoon until 6.30 or, or so, and then I kill my inbox every day. As best mm. I can. It's a so, process. So, so. so you're similar to me. You kind of, I get agitated if I'm at the end of the day and my inbox isn't dead. I, I, I obsess about inbox zero. And my secret sauce, dude, is it's like paper. You only handle something twice, right? So I, mm-hmm. either, I either delete it or I file it. I'm sorry. There's three things I'll do. I'll delete an email. I'll respond to an email or I'll file it where it needs to be answered. And I have two folders, which I call inbox A and inbox B. And A has to be dealt with at the end of every day, and B has to be dealt with at the end of every week. And that's where using Covey quadrant analysis, I'm separating, you know, the urgent from the important. No, that's brilliant. That's actually, that's really brilliant. I, I kind of lump everything into inbox A, right? And so uh, it, there's the stuff you respond to right away, the stuff you delete right away, and then the rest of it, I save up to about four o'clock in the afternoon. But I like that inbox B because there is some stuff that honestly, especially when it's carbon copied on multiple people, et cetera, sometimes it's better to just sit back and wait to see the rest of the responses before you chime in. That's brilliant. Yep. What are you reading right now? I am rereading Team of Teams by General um, Stanley McChrystal. I, I read it too fast last year. And, and, and it's kind of, if you've ever read a book, if you ever kind of read a book on a plane, you're on your Kindle and you're flipping through it, you're like, this is cool, this is cool, this is cool. And then you can't stop thinking about certain things, but you can't quite piece it back together like the author did. And you want to go back and read the book and it blows your mind the second time. That was the experience I had with Innovator's Dilemma you know, years ago. And I'm having that experience with McChrystal's team of teams. Here's the takeaway, the big idea. It takes a network to defeat a network. And networks are built with small armies of highly committed people. I love it. I love it. No, I, and I know exactly what you're feeling. For uh, Roger Martin's The Opposable Mind was mm. that for me, where I read it the first time and was like, oh, that was really cool. And then as I'm trying to piece together the stories and remember the sort of how they tie into the thesis, I'm like, let me do it again. And it just mm-hmm. gets better every time I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you believe that most people don't? I believe that your motivation to help other people is to get them to pay forward. Most other people I know believe that our motivation to help people is partially to help them and most importantly to trigger reciprocity, to help ourselves. So while I understand the Zieglerite way of thinking that we help others succeed so we can succeed as I've matured in this generosity thinking area, I believe the only reason to help people is to groom the next generation of helpers. So now when I mentor somebody or when I network somebody or whatever, and they're like, wow, I really appreciate it. What can I do for you? And I say, nothing, nothing. Focus here. There's going to be someone in your life that comes along that you can mentor and network and help them without expectation. And that's something that I've only come to understand in the last few years. And by the way, If you believe that, David, you'll never be disappointed 
by helping other people. You know, uh, ironically, I think you accidentally, or not accidentally, purposely just told the audience the, the basis of our entire relationship, because I feel that same way all the time. I've got these brilliant ideas that come to me from Tim on years as an executive, years as an author, speaker, et cetera. And I keep thinking, like, I got, I got nothing to pay him back with. But that's what I'll do. I'm saving it, and I will just find who, right. when I'm old enough to have an, an, un, an up-and-coming generation, <laughs> I will look to them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you brilliant. will. You're going to be David Burkus's older brother someday at South by, and you're going to feel the burn, buddy. That is pretty awful. I've never been called that, but I was once called a fat John Travolta, which is <laughs> a little, a little embarrassing because John Travolta is not exactly a uh, a trim species himself right now. Um, <laughs> last question: The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? A leader is a person who can, according to Napoleon Bonaparte, define reality, then give hope. So I think that the leader is adept at, at defining the exact space, the exact position, and the course of, of their organization. And I think they're able to do it as well during the worst of times as they do during the best of times. And what they're able to do, and this is a phrase I've used several times in this interview, is focus the team on the next best play. You know where this comes from? No, where? Coach K at Duke. That's what he would always say to his players. Hey, next play. In other words, hmm. you got to, you know, success is a direction forward, right? You got to focus on the next play. That's what a good leader does. So a good leader is going to say, we're getting our butts kicked in this market. We've only got three months to dig our way out, and our competitors just got funding. That being said, we have a next play. The next play can be highly disruptive, and we're going to rally around the next play. So, so I think that's the essence of leadership, because if you can't strike the balance between reality and hope, you don't have followers. And then to use the Chinese proverb, you're not a leader. You're just taking a walk. Hmm. Mm. No, I love it. I love it. And it and it jives with everything we've been talking about today. The the book again is Deal Storming, the secret weapon that will solve your toughest sales challenges. And do me a favor, go to, go to Amazon, grab a copy of this, and then underneath it'll tell you customers also bought, and it'll probably tell you Love is the Killer app. And if you've never read that, grab a copy of that one too and read them either alongside each other or one right after another. You'll learn a lot about everything that Tim has talked about today, especially what he believes that most people don't, which now that I understand it, I love it even more. Tim, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Hey, you're welcome. And I know you like Sales Genius as a team sport, both conceptually and as a chapter. And I just wanted to give you a secret link where people can just download that entire chapter. Oh, cool. Yeah. Right. I'll give you the actual link. It's dealstorming.net front slash free. And that'll point you right at the Dropbox. You'll get that 32-page chapter. You can read the essence of that, that, that team sport. So dealstorming.net front slash free. Perfect. Awesome. And we'll link that in the show notes as well for, for those of you that are just that, that couldn't remember that, although it's pretty easy, right? Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, David.